1: The podcast. How's it going, Lindsay?
2: I'm so happy to be back for this episode.
1: Yeah, I'm excited about this, and it's kind of wild. I was thinking I didn't realize this till today. What's that? Um, this was not a planned thing, but this is the fourth consecutive movie we've done where it's like, like sort of this like outstanding debut by a first time director. Oh my gosh! Started the season off with Alex Cox Repo Man. Yeah. uh, Jamie Babbitt's But I'm a Cheerleader. We just wrapped up uh, Mario Van Peebles' New Jack City,
2: and now we've got Stuart Gordon with this amazing. Debut, theatrical debut.
1: And uh, I'm kind of happy too that we're able to, you know, shoehorn in another horror movie, not just relegate these to the month of October.
2: And of course, what we're talking about is 1985's Reanimator.
1: Such a. uh, It's been wild watching this movie like multiple times the last week.
2: with, With every watch, I just keep loving it even more. It's so much fun. I don't find it to be scary, but it. It's pretty bloody, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah, it,
1: and it, you know it's like when we're sitting down to pick a horror movie for mm-hmm. this one, trying to find one that was a nice balance between one that hasn't been talked about a trillion million times, but one that's also legitimately has a a a bunch of ground that we can cover. Yeah, you know, because a, a lot of horror movies I love, there's not a whole lot. There's not a whole lot to them
2: behind them. Sometimes it was a happy accident that it worked out. Sometimes it was always going to be a blockbuster. This one was a low budget horror movie, and it didn't do like the greatest at the box office. But it blew up after that, and yeah, it's definitely. Is, I looked, think
1: this is definitely like a pretty big cult. It's a cult phenomenon, movie. Yeah. yeah. And uh, really, I think rightly so gets that title because there's really not. I mean there's certainly movies that you can say that maybe were an influence of this and there's certainly movies that have this movie's influenced, but mm-hmm. on its own when it came out, there's this there's not a whole lot of movies like this one. It's it's pretty pretty different. Um, but we'll we'll talk about those differences among the horror films of the eighties. That'll along, be that'll uh, be fun. Yeah. To
2: talk about the state of horror in eighty five and before that.
1: Uh, we'll definitely talk about uh collaboration of Stuart Gordon, Brian Usna, and Charles Band, a little bit about Stuart Gordon's career. Also the original stories that the
2: this reanimator story comes from, which was originated from a six part wasn't it was they were short stories from the author H.P. Lovecraft called Herbert West's Reanimator.
1: And we'll kind of take you through some of the behind the scenes there's quite quite a bit documented on what went on behind the scenes of this movie. Nothing uh, dramatic or controversial. Yeah. But uh, a lot of kind of cool stuff. Um, this is a pretty effects-heavy, practical effects-heavy movie. So we'll talk a little bit about that.
2: We'll also go into the little controversy around the musical score. Oh, uh, yes. And... There's a there's a little bit around that, and also I'm I'm gonna throw in something that I haven't heard anybody talk about, which is the, well we'll get there.
1: Okay, we'll, we'll get, get there. there. Well, so after our reanimator talk, we'll of course do our picks of the week. Uh, this week connected to reanimator via Brett Culpepper, who did the special effects. Um, he also did the special effects for a 1985 movie called The Stuff, which uh, kind of had a lot of the same things going for it that reanimator did. Had a very like dark humor mixed with horror and sci- mm-hmm. science fiction. I'm a big fan of the stuff. I like that movie a lot. Yeah, it's 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 an enjoyable film. A yeah. lot a lot going on in that movie. So I'm going to try to get that condensed condense it all down into a, something short, I hope.
2: I always leave that movie really hungry and wanting to eat that substance even though it's a bad idea. Um so for my pick of the week, I went with uh, a movie that maybe you've seen. Uh, pretty popular when it came out uh, and that was 1989's honey I shrunk the kids that is connected to reanimator by way of Brian Usna uh, the producer and Stuart Gordon who was the director of course of
1: reanimator I haven't seen Honey, I shrunk the kids in a long time but when that came out I mean I was yeah. I was a huge fan
2: yeah it was a big deal I think it was an accidental big deal
1: and it was kind of like a Kind of a sleeper hit. Mm-hmm. But that was back when there wasn't a ton of sort of live-action Disney kids' movies.
2: Yeah. And it it's interesting, too, that it came from the uh, minds of, you know, horror freaks. Yeah, it's strange <laughs> to
1: think of Brian Usen and Stuart Gordon. like yeah. Mixed in with a Disney movie. Yeah, but, it is. But it worked. It worked. Uh, then, of course, always we'll round things out with our Murray moment. Oh, yeah. And... Um, so, before we kick off our first Reanimator clip, uh, Lindsay, can you break down for us what uh, this movie is about?
2: I would love to tell you about Reanimator, Justin. The movie follows Herbert West, who is a medical student, and he has procured and is trying to perfect a potion, a solution, a serum that brings the dead back to life, the recently dead back to life. I guess it could bring back an old corpse that's been buried for a while, but um, he's trying to find the freshest specimen out there. He moves in with another medical student of his, and his girlfriend's over there quite a bit, kind of pals around with the new roommate, and together they start bringing back corpses to life and trying to figure out... Why it ain't so pretty? Why it ain't so easy? And then they kind of come in contact with a, a doctor who's actually
0: the evil one
2: involved in all of this, and then he just complicates everything, and, oh, we'll get to him all right.
1: It's kind of a crazy story.
2: It's so all over the place, but it's, like it's a mad scientist story. It's about bringing back the dead, and I think pretty cool how the story kind of changes from where you what you think of the main Herbert West character to what you end up thinking about him by the end of the movie.
1: Yeah, it's definitely one of those movies that you can't really call it. Like, I'm, time's not sure where the movie's going to go. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I never want to call it a zombie movie. We talked about this uh, before. I never want to call it a zombie movie. It's hard for me to even say it's science fiction, but it is science fiction because it's bringing the dead back to life. If somebody really knows if there is a you know serum out there that that you know if if this is not fiction please let us know who's discovered this secret
1: I feel a lot of people consider this I feel some people do consider this like a a part of the zombie yeah genre but I could see that a little bit I guess you know is
2: I mean the only d-
1: the Walking Dead you know it's like
2: it is it is quite literally the Walking Dead but not not the t v show but Walking, grunting corpses, corpses, but it just it just crosses a, a lot of different things for me. It's a black comedy. it's got you know a little bit of a love story or a caring character in it it's it just kind of hits on a lot of different things, yeah. but definitely like a mad
1: scientist absolutely story. unique. Let's go to a clip of Mad Scientist Herbert West, and then we'll talk about it.
0: What are you doing in my room? How dare you come to my room? Dad! What's the matter? What's the matter? I thought I was going to the private room, Dan. Meg, what the hell are you doing in here? I... Would you please leave? Uh, Now, easy! In the fridge! I was going to show you. Shut up. What happened? It was dead when I found it. You killed him. He hated you. Thank like, like... It suffocated. It knocked the garbage over, and it got its head stuck in a jar. You weren't home, so I put it in there. I certainly didn't think you'd want to find it like that. I did not want to stink the place up. I was going to show you. You couldn't call or write a note. I was busy pushing bodies around, as you well know. And what would a note say, Dan? Cat dead, details later. I knew you were fond of it. You killed him. I know you did. He killed him. Besides, I do not like people in my room. All right, that's enough. I think you both better leave now. What the hell is this? That is none of your business. Yeah, I think it is. this is none of my business that you're sleeping with Dean Halsey's daughter. Oh. You know, I would not want to see a fellow student, especially one as promising as yourself, be thrown out of school, out of the profession, on moral grounds. I think Dr. Halsey just might understand. Oh, do you? Well, you may well be right. Are you sure you want to find out?
1: <laughs> so, I guess the very first thing we could just make mention of is the title sequence of Reanimator is excellent. Done by Robert Dawson, who also did the Repo Man opening credit sequence. Which is one of my favorites. He went on to pretty much do, like, you know, every major. Countless title yeah, sequences and in movies. Hollywood. One of the major title sequence guys did most of Tim Burton's movies mm-hmm. for a low budget movie. I mean, this one just shy of a million dollars. You know, just a title sequence alone. It has the, this sort of like opening scene and then the. I mean, post opening the- scene title sequence, the score. There's a lot of talent that went in this movie. And one of the keys to this movie's success is that just because it had a low budget didn't mean it was like a cheap looking, not well made film. It, it, there's, a, there's a lot of talent behind it and a lot of, you know, the score, the special effects, mm-hmm. again, the title sequence, all these things that sort of were really polished and, and really unique and high end for, for such a low budgeted film.
2: I think one of the things that makes this movie so special and you can really tell and when you watch interviews or just anything, you can tell that so much love was put into this movie and that the people involved really wanted to get the most out of out of everything. They were thinking about how to get the audience into this movie immediately, like before before the title sequence, we start off with a bang and it and it is a gory thing as a gory thing that happens man's eyes pop out of his socket and we don't really know what's happening with this herbert west character and then bam this beautiful title sequence and then we go into the story and it's just you can just tell that the people that made this movie love horror movies and they know what is going to get the audience involved
1: yeah, and you know, and I like to talk a little bit. I always like to do this when we do a movie that's the first film of a director. Mm-hmm. And this one, and especially when it's a movie that is this well made, Stuart Gordon came from the uh, theater scene in Chicago, like, had been doing theater for like 15 years, directing theater. And they had so many good actors in their repertory that they decided you know, we should really get into the filmmaking business. And so one of his friends suggested that he should do a horror film because they said, you know, no, if it, even if it comes out bad, <laughs> usually you can get your money back. Yeah. So Horror uh, films were big in the, yeah, early, in the 80s. early 80s. Yeah, it was like a lot. And, and especially one of the few movies that could be made independently, but mm-hmm. then get distributed and eventually find their way into cinema houses. Yeah. Well, Stuart Gordon uh, took it upon himself to look for a horror film, and he was he was thinking about the Frankenstein stories. There was a lot of the cinemaplexes were kind of overrun with vampire stories, and he really loved the old. and He was a fan of horror films. He was a fan of the old style horror films from the from the fifties and sixties, and he really liked the Frankenstein story. He wanted to kind of do something with that. A friend of his suggested he should check out H.P. Lovecraft's
2: Herbert West, Reanimator. Yeah. And he really did take, like, kind of mine out the gems in this, like, six-part H.P. Lovecraft story and put it all into one. I think originally, though, they had thought about doing it as a stage play. And then when that idea was kind of thrown out, then he wanted to do it as a six part kind of miniseries. I can't remember if it was on PBS or not. That's who he tried to shop it to for some reason. That's
1: And they said that was not their bag. <laughs>
2: nope. Nope. But I I think in, in his eyes, this wasn't just a horror movie or it wasn't just a horror tale. It's so clinical and and kind of you feel like you're in an anatomy class almost when you watch this movie and you get that feeling from even the title sequence so when that idea was kind of thrown out as far as like doing it as a a six-part miniseries then he met up with Brian Usna and Brian Usna was like dude what you're going to do is you're going to combine all the stories, not just take one and the, the first one and the last one. You're going to take all of them, combine it, mine it all out, and we're going to release this as a horror movie.
1: And I think originally that he was going to shoot it in Chicago, but then the theater company that he was working with, once they got wind of the script, they, they were like, yeah, we, you can't make this kind of movie <laughs> here. So inevitably he ended up going to Los Angeles to do the movie in Hollywood I think got a different group of actors like the repertory that he had worked with in Chicago then ended up didn't end bringing them to LA. Um, mm-hmm. But ended up getting a, a group of really well seasoned actors, you know, that had done some stuff just weren't household names. I think for the horror films of the 80s, the first thing that I notice in a movie like this yeah. is that number one, it doesn't delve into a world of like teenagers and young people doing drugs and having sex. It's it's a definitely, you know, it takes place in like hospitals and medical school and just all things that you didn't really see in the world of horror and, you know, the early 80s.
2: And another thing that makes this one special as far as it being, you know, a horror movie in the early 80s when the more blood, like that's what was going to pack a theater, was just like slasher films were huge at, at that point. And this really deviated from that genre. This wasn't a vampire movie. It wasn't totally a zombie movie. It wasn't flashy necessarily as far as like the gore goes. It really feels like I'm not grossed out when I watch this movie. I mean yeah okay there is some really gross stuff in it actually but it doesn't feel gratuitous you know.
1: Yeah it's not gratuitous but it is it's definitely I would consider I would put it up there with like a gore film even though a lot of the the gore in it is anatomy and they are. It's is. They are in the medical field. It is. It, I don't know. Maybe it is okay, gratuitous. Okay. I okay. Mean, there, there are some pretty like I, ridiculously gross scenes, and the sound re- effects are outrageously gross.
2: I just realized why I say that, though. Um, it's it's totally because I look at this like, okay, I told you.
1: I mean, the scene right now that we're watching is just absolutely disgusting. (laughs) He's holding a brain. He's holding a brain. It's a doctor
2: holding a brain. There's
1: an open head that's completely like sawed open.
2: Yeah, but he's doing it for medical students. Okay. he's giving a demonstration. I just realized why I'm coming at it like this. And it's because, Justin, I, I worked at a vet for many years. And seeing open cavities and seeing gore, really... All day long, and it just became kind of like second nature. So, to me, like seeing something like this, even blood on the wall or something like that, it does, if if it's in this setting, it feels more, yes, it's gross. I'm not going to deny that, but it it feels a little bit more acceptable than like someone getting, you know, a hook through the chest. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's
1: definitely not, I would say it's not so much exploitive, but it is gratuitous in a way of, uh, things are definitely emphasized. Uh, this is a movie that when we were the first screening we did, you came over, and uh, uh-huh. Mary was your wife, yeah, came yeah. in and said, oh, what are you guys watching this week? And uh, yeah, she made it about all of ten minutes. <laughs> and nope, I'm later. out and and I will say when I was listening to the commentary, doing research, listening to the commentary, and just when it would cut into the sound effects, they are pretty nasty,
2: okay. Okay,
1: I'm I'm gonna I'm not, I'm not. I'm not fighting with you on this. I'm thing, gonna I'm concede saying. on
2: this though. It it is gory, and I don't want anyone to go into this thinking like, oh, this is totally like a light movie. I can get past it. It just doesn't feel. I don't know. I, I, the death scenes in Freddy Krueger movies, you know, are kind of grosser than what happens in here. It just seems like a, it's a medical experiment the whole time. In this yeah movie. I think it's the because cat the... scenes a little much for me even yeah. though even though it's obviously a, a, a cat puppet and it's not like the creators of this movie this was lost on them they they knew exactly what they were doing and Brian Usna specifically is known for wanting to see just how far he can go with certain things you know you write something into the into the script and go okay let's go a little bit further how, how much further can we go yeah. and, and If memory serves, this movie in its original cut was two and a half hours in its unrated theatrical cut is about an hour and a half. So quite a bit was cut out.
1: Yeah. And, and though we do have a lot of this like medical horror realism mm-hmm. in the beginning, I get what you're saying. You know, the second half of this film kind of goes bonkers. And, you know, we've got, we do have a talking head, you know, with it, with a that's corpse holding com- it. But, I'm just, but you know, <laughs> there there's some pretty disgusting, like sort of set pieces. But yeah. I do, you know. But but Stuart Gordon was a very intelligent director, and he did. This was a very well researched film. He went to morgues, he went to uh, doctors, and, yeah. and looked at pictures of bodies that were post mortem, and really tried to show a realistic depiction of like post mortem uh, bodies and bring us into that clinical world of like how doctors see bodies. It's a little different, you know, than your standard chop them up horror movie.
2: Exactly. that, that is exactly it. The effects guys were given photos of different stages of actual decomposing bodies. And like you said, Stuart Gordon was really going for that. And I think that combined with Brian Usna really trying to push the envelope turned into this,
1: what I, what I feel is just a giant love fest for the horror genre. The horror audience is intelligent and they do um, appreciate when the movie respects that intelligence and I think this was a movie that did that and I think that even though maybe they were trying to let's go the horror route because they're cheap to make and you know there is an audience Brian Usna and Stuart Gordon um, were respectful and they said you know we want to make a good movie we want to make something a little bit different we want to tap into something that's horror but something that's unique And I think this is why this movie is such a real treat for horror fans and why it's become sort of this like celebrated cult film.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great way to say it. Another thing, too, that I find really impressive, too, for Brian Usna, who I said, you know, was known for pushing the envelope and did one of my favorite movies that I talked about in episode 25 as a pick of the week, which was Society. That movie holds back so much until the very end, the last 20 minutes, like, blows your mind. But it was, to me, I feel like it was the whole point of that was the build-up to get to that point. And knowing that there was so much more in Reanimator, and then going back and looking at it, he and Gordon were like, you know what? It's way more effective if we don't go as far as we actually have gone in this. And we, it's funny to say, let the let the viewer you know let their imagination go because there's really like I don't know how much further I would go you know in this movie like letting my imagination go further than what this movie already is I
1: feel like there's not much left to the imagination apparently
2: there was and they they held back a little bit but I think that that's cool because I think that you get to that that certain point that rising action and then like climax and then it's like like if you keep going Sometimes it's just kind of like, you know, you already had your climax and you're just keeping on going. And that's when it gets gratuitous and that's when it just gets unnecessary. Yeah,
1: I think that I definitely think that this movie pushes the envelope and pushes boundaries. Um, But I don't think it I think that it it, I think it teeters on tasteless at times. You think so? I think it teeters on tasteless at times, but... I, I mean the one that,
2: scene that's terrible. Yeah, but. there's a
1: couple scenes that but 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 I think that and again I think that that's why I would put this I would I would consider this a movie for, you know, quote unquote gore hounds, you know, that they want to see the gore, they want to see the close ups of, you know, eyeballs popping out. This does satisfy that crowd, but I do think that this also satisfies a crowd that wants to see a well made produced horror film. Science fiction film, but we should uh, we should go to we should go to one of these clips, and then we'll okay. come back and we'll talk about Reanimator some more.
0: Robert. No, did you see him there? He listened to me. It made a conscious act. He heard you as an animal would. Robert, no, you can't be serious. Uh, you may be right. It had probably been dead too long. It wasn't fresh enough. We'd probably only revive the senses and the instincts. So, come on. Help me get him. Is it Dan? Of course. Will you give me a hand here? Now, he interrupted an important experiment in progress. But granted, it was an accident. But this is the freshest body that we could come across save of killing one ourselves. And every moment that we spent talking about it cost us results. Now, will you give me a hand? Dan, we can bring him back to life.
1: So Jeffrey Combs, who plays one of the main characters, Dr. Herbert West. He really is in a lot of ways uh, an anti-hero. I mean, he's he's set up as the villain um in the beginning of the film, sort of the mad scientist mm-hmm. villain yeah. who's got the crazy idea to you know, bring the dead back to life. But then I, I wouldn't necessarily say you sim- sympathize with him toward the end of the film, but we we we're, we're introduced to a the real villain which is uh
2: Doctor Hill. Doctor
1: because Hill. he wants to steal Herbert West's idea for yes. his own and he's the one who inevitably ends up getting decapitated and reanimated. What, what
2: the what the story is there is like Doctor Hill knew about the this original reanimation research, um, that was uh thought of by a doctor. Hans Gruber, who everyone likes to bring up as the villain and Die Hard, but that movie came after this. But Hans Gruber came up with this research. That's the person who we see in the beginning who dies and Herbert West is over him with this reanimation solution. And did he kill him? Was he trying to reanimate him? Anyway, Herbert West studied under him. He finds out that basically Dr. Hill has been plagiarizing his work, doesn't respect Dr. Hill, and then here we are. He's trying to steal... Herbert West's
1: research. Yeah, and he ends up killing Dr. Hill by decapitating him with a shovel. It's pretty good. But then reanimates him in the hope that... Because the one test he hasn't been able to do is reanimating someone who has just died.
2: I've never reanimated parts before.
1: Yeah, and uh, so then we... the kind of the scene that you see on the cover of the reanimator box that so many times I saw in my youth <laughs> yeah. always afraid to watch this movie is the the head in a in a vat with the corpse holding the head in a <laughs> container full of blood so disgusting
2: it's so graphic but it's it's disgusting but it's also it's also funny pretty ridiculous and the way he
1: like talks of, ah, yeah <laughs> just too much just Stand, standing like that me no. doing that voice
2: they were okay watching reanimator except for the cat the cat scene
1: but i do think that that's one of the reasons why this movie you can't really put your finger on it you don't know exactly which direction it's going to go because you do have this sort of villain who's not a villain and then we are introduced to a real villain and then you have the main character uh, who's dan kane yeah who's who's kind of caught up in the middle of it along with his His girlfriend, whose father is also the Dean, and she's played by Barbara Crampton, who has a really pivotal kind of hardcore scene in this, you know.
2: Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. A lot of people think that she's kind of a throwaway character in this movie, and maybe it's just because she wasn't in the original Lovecraft story. But then again, like women weren't in his stories at all. But... If anything, Justin, I think you brought up a great point when we talked about this before, that she's she's the voice of reason in all of this, because if her, her boyfriend is the main character who kind of gets under this thrall of Herbert West and this idea of, I mean, at first he thinks he's crazy, and then he's like, no, 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 he can reanimate the dead. And girlfriend Barbara Crampton's like, this isn't right. This is not not cool at all.
1: And I also think you have the scene, the sort of return of the Jedi moment where her father, who's who's been reanimated, yeah. is is a part of, uh, under the control of Dr. Hill. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got like an army of undead now and uh, later in the movie. But um, the father sort of remembers his daughter even though he's been lobotomized and is undead. And you kind of have that return of the Jedi moment where... <laughs> he turns on his master to help, yeah, you know helped his help his uh help his spawn,
2: yeah, which is I think one reason why this kind of flies in the face of the conventional zombie story too, is this idea of like they're they're going back to kind of like voodoo stuff as far as zombies go, there is that idea of like a zombie master of being able to control a horde of them. And I think that's kind of what this is playing on a little bit, but it seems a little bit more than that. Yeah. In order the plot for... gets
1: a little shaky in that last 20 <laughs> minutes. It's like, wait, how did he like, how's he controlling his people? But you know, it, it, it
2: There's, there's also a giant part of them, of the movie that was cut out. And that is the Dr. Hill before he became reanimated, had the ability to psychically control people. And, Stuart Gordon and Brian Yuzna were just kind of like, yeah, all those muddles up the story. We're throwing that out. So, there, there are some things that would make much more sense when you watch it now. Yeah, because
1: there is that moment where it's like, wait, what's going on here? It <laughs> takes a second, you know. And you know, I go along with it. This like, yeah. Again, it's, just, it's a horror film, suspension, disbelief. But there is a moment where it's just like, man, he did it. He did a lot in a little bit of time. Like you know, lobotomized I mean, all these people and created a undead army.
2: But- I, I bought it. You know, it wasn't it wasn't enough of a plot hole for me to go, "Wait a second. Okay, you know what? I believed it up until this point. Like all of it's completely unbelievable." Yeah, after
1: you see a talking head, <laughs> you 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 kind of got to just, you know, you're along for the ride. And it's a fun movie, so it's worth it.
2: It is. It's it's about obsession, power, greed, also a little bit of a weird love triangle kind of. That's my idea though. I don't know if that's really a real thing, but and the idea of just what if? What if you could bring the dead back to life? And this whole thing that we talked about when we did Pet Cemetery—you know—that idea of just not being able to let go. What if you could bring the dead back to life, as we saw in Pet Cemetery? And this—it's um—it ne- it never ends well.
1: And I think, like Stuart Gordon said, it like this movie sort of promor- promotes the idea that like uh, death is the world's biggest disease, Whoa. you know. And so we want to like, yeah. y- you know, there's that idea of like. Well, what if we could like prolong that, you know?
2: Yeah. Anyway, all uh, like jam packed, great performances Barbara Crampton, Bruce Abbott, and uh, Jeffrey Combs, and oh. David Gale. Yeah.
1: Everybody. And yeah, just, a, just a, a pretty solid cast, you know, like pretty decent acting. One last thing before we go to our picks of the week I know we wanted to talk just briefly about the music composed by Richard Band brother of Charles Band, of Empire Pictures. And he went on to do quite a bit of composing for horror movies. Um, I know he did the next movie that Stuart Gordon did, From Beyond. Uh, but the score of this is really fantastic. And it, But it is, when you're listening to it, uh, immediately will think, wait a minute, this sounds very familiar. <laughs> what now, is this? Now, hmm. you, you were thinking... <laughs> It sounded very much like Death Becomes Her, well, which there are similarities, but um, it, comes, I mean, it, is, it is very much a homage to yes. the Psycho, and um, you had mentioned in the beginning, in our introduction, some controversy about the well, composition of this score.
2: Well, just because it, it does... I mean, the controversy is pretty well known ab- about this, but it, I think it was looked at like as a direct rip-off, and... I mean, everything about the the title sequence kind of kind of says that, even though it's much more colorful. But the music is certainly that. But um, Richard Band really he did it as an homage, and he freely admits that. From to what the a,
1: Bernard Herman Psycho score, yeah,
2: yeah, and he freely admits that. And if anything, he wanted to make it a little bit quirkier. Uh, there were some orchestral differences. I think the biggest thing is like there's a drum beat in this, and and that was not in the, uh, the um psycho theme.
1: And you had to sort of like convince the litigious powers of be that this was certainly a homage, not a ripoff.
2: Because it's so obvious. Yeah.
1: Um, but it really is. I think it's a real driving score, and, and I mean, it, I I it get fits I, too. Yeah. You and know, it, so. it really does. Uh. It's another one of the elements that I think like really raised this movie up um, t- to be a more prestigious horror film than, than and, the films that came out around it.
2: And I think, again, goes along with that idea of this was a movie made by people who love horror movies, who love scary movies. And so paying homage to something like Psycho for something like this movie, this subject matter... It's 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 kind of I mean it makes me laugh because it makes sense and and I think Richard Band was really going for this idea of the this kind of playful humor that he got out of seeing Reanimator and then this is kind of what came out
1: and uh, finally I just wanted to say like 1985 was a pretty awesome year for different kind of horror films like and, you know and even outside the horror genre a little bit. But I think this was like a year where you really had some the horror horror comedy genre blend. These sort of hybrid movies uh, were really coming to prominence. You know, we had of course Reanimator, Fright Night, the stuff which I'll talk about in our picks of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the other ones? We well, Return of the Living Dead.
2: I did a pick of the week some episodes ago of Once Bitten. That was another horror. I, it was not a horror. It was a comedy horror vampire movie. Freddy Two, Reve- Freddy's Revenge, yeah. which you could consider a comedy. Yeah, Day of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Teen Wolf, Silver Bullet. You said uh, Ghoulies came out the year before.
1: Yeah, Transylvania was it?
2: Uh,
1: six Five Thousand. Yeah. Um, so there was. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of like horror comedy
2: and just like uh, different horror movies. Like Fright Night really ch- changed things. Yeah, it just seemed like people were there was a certain era that was getting burnt out and Freddy was starting to emerge and that had already kind of changed horror at that point. And before that, you know, we'd really moved into slashers. Before that it was hammer films of like yeah. the Omen and but I think Rosemary's Baby.
1: Yeah, and I think this was this was like kind of the kickoff of like we're coming out, you know, like let's try to do something other than slasher exactly. films. Or straight up vampire or, you know, like let's let's try to break a branch out so and and mix some genres but i think 85 was a great year for for these kind of films and and certainly reanimator uh i think being at the top of that list
2: yeah i'm really happy i own this movie it never gets old
1: well let's move on to our picks of the week so our picks of the week this time around are wildly different yeah Um, i went with another sort of horror sci-fi black humor Mm -hmm. movie and you went with uh Total horror act, movie. Action Adventure Kids <laughs> film. Uh, so I did the stuff and you went for Honey I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah. What can you what can yeah. you tell me about Honey I Shrunk the Kids? This is one I, I want to revisit this. I haven't seen it forever, but I used to love this movie.
2: I know. I think I I don't know I've never heard somebody say, Man, i you know one movie I hated was that ever. It's just so much fun. So this episode, like right now, is gonna be airing around the and 30th anniversary for this movie so I thought why not a better time to talk about this and considering that uh, this movie was brought to Disney by Stuart Gordon the director of Reanimator and uh, Brian Usna who produced the film who also produced this film and also helped write it alongside Gordon. Now if you've seen or heard of this movie you kind of get the idea from the fairly obvious title dad's a scientist working on a machine that shrinks objects and through a freak accident his kids and the neighbor kids are reduced to a millimicron size and dad accidentally throws them out with the trash there is a little side story of mom and dad emotionally getting back together in their search for the kids but the main focus of the movie is the kids harrowing journey back to the house traversing the treacherous backyard that is now giant size You might remember how the kids befriend an ant who defends them against a furious scorpion, or maybe climbing up giant blades of grass and then getting picked up by a bee, or how about when the yard turns into a dangerous swampland when the sprinklers turned on, or what about when they use ash from a cigarette butt as a torch, or maybe every kid's favorite part, mine included, when they're totally starving and find a giant cookie in the backyard. Dude, a cookie cream pie has never looked so good. The practical special effects in Honey, I Shrink the Kids is still astounding to me. I just, it just makes it so much more tactile. Like it's so gritty, real life. Just the imagery is just so believable, which is what you need in order to make a movie like this work. It's kind of like what you would imagine the up close version of like what magnified dirt would look like. You can and want to feel it when you watch this movie. Most of the sets and props took around nine months to make and the very real looking neighborhood was actually all a studio. None of those houses were real um, and that took about like six months to get all of that uh, done and filmed. Along with the minimal digital effects in this movie and impressive practical effects, stop motion animation was used for when the kids encounter backyard creatures and of course scale models and miniatures and the uh, forced perspective technique where your eye tricks you into thinking that a object is bigger than it actually is due to how it's being photographed. And like I already said it's it's funny to me that Gordon and Yusna built their careers on low budget horror films like like we've talked about. I mean thinking back to like Ticks, jeez, from Beyond Dolls, The Dentist, all of it. The list goes on for how many horror titles these guys have been involved with. So this movie can kind of seem out of place, but really It just comes from imaginative people who love doing practical special effects. There's just no boobs, blood, hideous murders, or monstrosities. It's very much a live-action Disney film with some seriously strong, perilous moments. And to me, it's still so much fun and a great example of how practical special effects make the believability of the improbable so much easier to buy than when the effects go completely digital. I could probably talk for... A long while on this one but I'm going to try to wrap it up a little bit. Um, quick side notes though Gordon didn't direct this film he was set to until right before the movie w- was uh, due to be shot and then he became sick wasn't able to do it so it went to first-time director another first-time director Joe Johnston who later went on to do The Rocketeer, October Sky, and Jumanji uh, another quick sidebar too is that this movie came out. I wanted to tell you this before Justin, but I kind of held it until right now. It came out the same weekend as Batman '89, and some believe that it greatly benefited from the sold-out overflow of people who couldn't get in to see Batman. And you also might remember, like I do, uh, before Honey, I Shrunk the Kids began, it was the first Roger Rabbit short called Tummy Trouble. And if memory serves I think it was also on the VHS release of this too cuz I know that I, I remember that very vividly. One more thing for you Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans out there. Joyce, Buffy's beloved sweet dear heart mom. Christine Sutherland uh, plays one of the character plays one of the parents in the movies and she's just as charming as ever. Just got to love anything with Joyce. I got to throw a Buffy thing in there. Okay, anyway, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is totally still so enjoyable. And I would suggest for any parents in their 30s or 40s that have kids now, show it to them because it's got enough 80s nostalgic vibe for you and would easily still hold your kids' attention.
1: Yeah, this was, I remember this being such a fun movie. And I, I want to say I went to Disney World when I was like 18, yeah, 17 or 18, and I remember there being some sort of section that was like, Sort of a honey I shrunk to kids where they had you could take your picture with gigantic props so you would look like you were smaller, like it. Yeah. This sort of the optical illusion kind of thing. I was thinking. And they did some obst- optical effects in this movie too. Yeah. I believe. Yeah. Like a lot of, kind of was... what they did in those movies, the where you can manipulate things where you push something really far away and yeah. it looks like it's three times like the size.
2: Force perspective idea. Yeah. And and stop motion was used a lot, like stop motion mixed with like actual animatronics uh on the set. I was thinking too, and this is for anybody from St. Louis, you know what the City Museum is or if it's like one of it's also one of our biggest attractions in St. Louis, but was thinking I I couldn't help but think that man, the City Museum really needs a honey I shrunk the kids esque Section in there that would really that would really work.
1: Yeah, I think that would, that would be a big hit. <laughs> all right, I want to hear about the stuff, Justin. So there's a lot going on. The stuff I'm going to try to consolidate this all down until as short as I possibly can. But the stuff also came out in 1985. Much like Reanimator is a sort of sci-fi horror comedy uh, hybrid, it was written directed by legendary uh, low-budget B filmmaker Larry Cohen. Uh, The film is sort of this biting satire on the American consumer and it's sort of a wink at that old saying, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. So the movie starts on this discovery of this sort of gooey uh, white substance that sort of has like an ice cream slash frozen yogurt appearance to it. Pretty soon it's mass marketed to the American public and the stuff becomes like a big huge craze. Um, It's sort of like marketed as like, the alternative to ice cream uh, with its big push of having zero calories, um, people become immediately addicted to this stuff almost. We soon come to learn, though, that the stuff is a, it's sort of a uh, living organism that slowly uh, works its way into your brain, takes over the brain, and leaves the consumer sort of this sort of mindless zombie, uh, which is just sort of like hollowed on the inside and just sort of like, living and going on with existence on the outside. So again, the sort of another poke at American consumerism in the eighties and excess, the, uh, sales of the stuff get really huge, but the sale of ice cream starts to plummet. So the head corporate office of the ice cream industry and the junk food industry, they all sort of team up and they, hire a former FBI agent to sort of investigate the stuff and and take it down they hire a bad boy david mo rutherford whose line throughout the film is you know why they call me mo cuz every time people offer me uh, give me money I just want Mo <laughs> uh, he, he his character he's played by Michael Mariardi and his character is just sort of like half awesome and half just like ridiculous the the movie sort of has a sort of cross cuts between also an a Amer- uh, suburban American family their youngest son sees the stuff moving around in the refrigerator he tries to warn his family but they've already become addicted to it so he's going to grocery stores he's like destroying grocery stores like destroying stuff displays. Eventually, he teams up with Michael Moriarty's character, Mo Rutherford. Mo Rutherford also teams up with this uh, commercial executive producer. She also becomes sort of this quick love interest in the movie. Very B-movie style. You got to have the love interest. You got to have the action. They all team up to basically take down the stuff with the help of a small team of of uh, ex-military led up by Paul Servino, early role by Paul Servino, uh, who is a uh, Polly and Goodfellas. They're able to take down the stuff via fire. They find out that that's its weakness. So they go to the distribution center. So once it happens, we think everything's good and fine. But the manufacturers figure out a way to redistribute the stuff as a product called The Taste, which is pretty much uh, has a low dosage of the original uh, formula that made up the stuff. But what uh, Moe's character decides to do is he takes... The two guys that are responsible for this, and he forces them to eat the stuff, in which we get the great tagline in the film, uh, where he jokingly says, "Are you eating it, or is it eating you?" Uh, <laughs> this movie's a lot of fun. This movie is very satirical. There's a lot of uh, poke. It pokes a lot of fun at eighties eighties commercials. There's like several scenes where they show the commercial, the stuff, which I think is fantastic. Um, it sort of shows people's sort of craze over like. Buying into a product and really, really like uh, preaching its praises without really knowing what's in it, um, and I think there was a lot of that in the eighties. You know, like soda, uh, cigarettes. You know, we we come to find out that these things are uh, lead to like all these diseases and are real killers. But at the time, our market is like, this is what you need. This is gonna, this is gonna make your life better, and people loved every minute of it. So I think it is a, it's a very smart film, though it, I think it is. Considered a horror film, I think it leans more heavily on, horror, like, sci-fi and comedy than it does horror. Really don't think there's much about this movie that's scary. Larry Cohen really does have a way to mix smart script writing, uh, really hard-nosed characters, and tongue-in-cheek comedy. And this movie is very campy. It's very fun. The special effects, uh, very much like Reanimator. Are practical. Some of them look extremely dated, but they're really awesome and fun. Like, this is a movie I can't recommend enough. It's not really, uh, like gross out, like kind of how Reanimator is. It's a little bit more tame. Um, I think this is something that if you've got like kids that are like 10 and over, it'd be a comfortable movie to watch with them. And if you like this movie, I recommend you check out the documentary I recently watched on Shudder. It's called King Cohen. It's a documentary on Larry Cohen's career, and a lot of the movies that he was had a big hand in writing and producing the Maniac Cop series, the It's Alive series. All those movies I think are worth a look if if you if you're interested in this stuff and interested in that documentary.
2: That was awesome. I didn't know there was a documentary on him. Cool. I think I-
1: it's like pretty pretty new, but I just watched it uh, when I was I found it when I was researching this stuff. And so I checked it out on Shudder, and it was, it was, it was pretty enjoyable.
2: Yeah, I really like it's Al- the It's a Live series. um With the stuff, you know what my favorite scene in the stuff is? This is a really dated-looking makeup effects scene, but man, I love it. Also because I love Garrett Morris, who's in this movie in, in a supporting role. One of it's like just a kind of weird role for him to be in in 85, but whatever. Well... You know where Garrett Morris eats it in his face? Do you remember like the f- oh, weird... where his,
1: his mouth starts opening up
2: <laughs> and his just mouth becomes yeah. ginormous. It's so weird looking.
1: And a lot of it's people my will scene. know him recently from Two Broke Girls. He plays the guy that runs the uh, cashier oh, counter. That's awesome. Like, I didn't a main know that character in that. Yeah, but this yeah, one of his early roles and
2: the stuff is awesome. It's uh, it's fun. It gives you like enough of enough of a chuckle and laugh and. The satirical little slip ins, uh, yeah, I think make this movie kind of timeless. As long as there's consumerism, this movie will be timeless.
1: So those are our picks of the week. The stuff and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, both fun movies. I think if you haven't seen them or you haven't seen them in a while, uh, definitely check them out.
2: They're both but, uh kind of kid friendly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's keep it moving. Here's your Murray moment. <music> Chicks dig me, because I
0: rarely wear underwear and when I do
1: it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal,
0: I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even show Okay, this is so scumful. Is this hand shucked? The flowing robes the grace, all striking. <sighs> that
1: was fun.
2: Billy's no stranger to horror comedies in the spirit of Reanimator. Maybe, well, maybe not that gory, but in the same kind of horror comedy spirit. As I talked about in episode 24, his cameo in Zombie Land is legendary. His bit part in Little Shop of Horrors is one of my favorites, and I know I'll talk about that in a future podcast. But perhaps his best known role is this little-known independent feature film, hardly anybody's heard of before. It's like totally a secret favorite of mine. Ghostbusters. Obviously, I'm totally being sarcastic. Nothing at the box office even came close to topping how much money this movie made until Home Alone came out like six years later. But what the hell can I talk about from Ghostbusters that isn't something that's already known by a million people? There have been books and boatloads of articles, blogs, any joker word vomiting about this movie is all over the internet. So I tried to dial it back a little bit, I thought about Billy and what I consider to be pretty brilliant, practical special effects in this uh, masterfully inspired classic from 1984. Now, both Ghostbusters and Reanimator gave so many people in the special effects industry jumpstarts to their career, and while Reanimator had 25 gallons of blood, you know, used during filming, which at the time was about 10 times more they say than what would normally be used. Um, Ghostbusters tipped the scale with at least 500 pounds of shaving cream mix that doubled for Exploded Marshmallow Man. And if you haven't seen Ghostbusters, well, first off, why haven't you? Secondly, the ending of the movie is this giant-sized Marshmallow Man exploding all over Manhattan. I've watched this movie too many times to count, and I can no joke do all of the dialogue from all of the characters while the movie's on mute. I'm very sick, I know this, but as someone who knows this movie so well, sometimes I think back to how I experienced Ghostbusters as a kid. And even then, you know, one thing I never understood: when the Puff Marshmallow Man explodes and all the Ghostbusters are head to toe covered in marshmallow mess, who's the one Ghostbuster who's barely touched by all that marshmallow shaving cream goo? Our Billy, of course. It never made sense to me. Ernie Hudson, Harold Ramis, Danny Aykroyd—they're all. They're all absolutely consumed by Marshmallow. All these three guys are down to be covered in it, it to a ridiculous point, and even Aykroyd wanted more to be piled on him, apparently. Ramus and Ivan Reitman, the director of Ghostbusters said it was kind of this inside joke to make all of them absolutely covered head to toe and Marshmallow just like make it so over the top. So audiences could accept this idea that there was a hundred foot Marshmallow Man trampling over Manhattan, but being covered in exploded Marshmallow yet otherwise unscathed? Well, that was just preposterous. That didn't make any sense. But why wasn't Billy covered in it too? How did Vankman escape being blasted by the Marshmallow Man. Did he quickly find a hiding spot that was 100% marshmallow shield? Did he hide behind another Ghostbuster? Was he just lucky? It's such a noticeable moment in the movie for me, and I think for a lot of people. Ramus did say that at one time he remembers someone being allergic and having a reaction to the menthol shaving cream that was used. However, he didn't say it was Billy. In fact, the only conclusion that I can find in the kind of totally makes sense to me is simply that Billy was like nah I'm good I don't need any marshmallow Reitman has even made a couple jokes about it saying yeah he just didn't want it in his hair that's all that was about and it makes sense to me if you've learned anything from these Murray moments is that Billy won't do anything if he doesn't want to he'll change a line if he thinks it doesn't work it's well known that Billy just wants the best for the picture he'll damn well express anything that he's very particular about though now, I'm not saying he demands green M&Ms and fresh flowers in his writer, but what I am saying is that the dude always appears to be game for anything, but will confidently say, nah, I'm good. Even if it doesn't make sense. Even if it looks out of place like it does in Ghostbusters. However, you know what? Every time that I watch this movie, I can't help but laugh at that scene for not only what it is, but also that it's ridiculous that he's basically untouched. It's just improbable. But in thinking that, I've also totally accepted the reality of a 100-foot marshmallow man existing in reality. So you see how that works? Leave it to Billy to make something funnier without even trying and creating this inside joke for all the people that were involved in making this scene in this legendary movie. Justin, do you remember what I'm talking about here?
1: I do remember and I do feel like I've noticed that he doesn't have as much, but I don't know that it's ever really stuck out to me.
2: I mean, it's just everyone's almost unrecognizably covered in it and he's got like a dollop on his shoulder and like a little in his hair it's always been something that stuck out to me yeah
1: now i'm always (laughs) gonna look at that closer when i watch ghostbusters i
2: look at it every single time i brought this up to my mom and she's like yes why anyway i know it was a a little a little murray moment there's a man i i didn't i didn't write this up but if we ever talk about frankenhooker there's a Murray connection in there. It just didn't fit into here.
1: Yeah. Well, we should work it in.
2: <laughs> it's so there minor. There should be a reason to talk about Frankenhooker. <laughs> yeah, there's there are reasons to talk about Frankenhooker.
1: Well, that was your Murray moment. Uh, thanks so much again for that. So you had a final thought on, before we totally wrap things up, you had a final thought on Reanimator. I did have some final thoughts, real quick. I don't want it to be...
2: Uh, lost on on anybody listening to this, like that there there are differences between the Lovecraft uh, uh, six installments of this story and the movie. That kind of there there's a lot in re I mean a, a ton in Reanimator and also in the in the second one Bride of Reanimator has a little bit from the original Lovecraft stories too. My biggest thing that I I want to say the biggest difference between the Lovecraft stories and this film is that. In Lovecraft, Herbert West is he turns into a murderer. He still has the same determination and kind of like weird uh, psychoness about him that he does in in the movie, but to me, people always talk about in the movie Reanimator did he kill his roommate's cat? Did he kill Meg's cat? I don't think he did, but in the Lovecraft story. He, he does kill something. He does kill somebody. There also is a Dr. Halsey in the original Lovecraft stories, too, that kind of comes back in the same way as as Dr. Hill. There's a whole other plot line that's uh, very different from the movie. And also major difference uh, from the movie to the story is that Dan, who's the narrator... And again, the main focus of the of the story, who's telling you everything that Herbert West is doing. Herbert West totally, he eats it. I mean, I'm sorry, zombies eat him. And uh, Dan watches it all go down. So there's a very, very different ending, but it is still kind of like the zombie horde ending. And uh, kind of the end of Reanimator is ambiguous in some ways. You kind of think maybe Herbert West dies, but he doesn't.
1: I think they definitely, there was an intention to set it up for a sequel. Or, yeah. you know, I mean, in the set 80s, it up for... yeah, you always want to set it up for a yeah. payoff sequel.
2: Yeah. Um, so I do encourage you to check out the stories. They are um, of a certain, I mean, it's, it's from many, many, many a year ago, over a hundred years ago. And Lovecraft is also, was also known to be quite have a little bit of a racist flair in him. And there is at least one one of the uh, reanimator stories that's kind of... There's some questionable dialogue in there. And uh, he's a little yeah. bit of a xenophobe as a, yeah, I re- as I a person.
1: There, I read there's almost no female characters in any yeah. of his stories.
2: Not a big fan of the ladies either. So Lovecraft himself was... Uh, maybe not the coolest of dudes but as far as gothic horror goes even Stephen King considers him like one of the most amazing like practitioners of like contemporary got or not I guess not contemporary but of of gothic horror so whatever type of person the man actually was he did write some pretty engaging stories and they're and they're worth checking out too especially if, if you're a fan of of uh this movie i That was already one final thought, but here's it's another like a one bonus thought a bonus thought in case you love Reanimator and you thought maybe we wouldn't talk about it. There is a very very iconic disturbing scene in this movie of where a where Doctor Hill, after he has been his head has been removed from his body, he has his body I forget how they get there how do how does he get Meg again? Anyway, he gets Meg, he straps her up, and pins her down uh, naked, and Dr. Hill's head is planning on sexually assaulting Meg. It is incredibly disturbing on, like, so many levels. Like, it is a sexual assault that's happening. It could go much further than what it does, and I'm very glad that they made the artistic decision to not go further. I think that more was filmed, but I don't think, I mean, there wasn't, that wasn't in the, the theatrical release, and that was a great decision on their part. Barbara Crampton, though, she is so great in this movie, and, and I don't feel like that she's a throwaway character. I'm glad that she was added in, and it was definitely added, her character was definitely added, in order to create this other this other side of the Dan character that we needed for him to be the straight man In the story and um, gosh, I wish I could ask her what she was feeling during that entire scene of the headless sexual assault, how long it took to film that scene and how many people were in the room for that scene. Well, why do I there's so many
1: questions because it's
2: does it still bother her now?
1: I remember Stuart Gordon saying that she had just about everybody leave the room good and they had a lot of publicity photographers on the set during the production of reanimator she was very adamant about making sure that no publicity photos were taken well good like everybody was able to re- leave the room and Stuart gordon said that i don't remember how long ago this was but he made it sound like it was like within the last like 10 years or so uh there was a convention uh that he was attending with barbara crampton and mm-hmm. uh a fan came up to her and wanted her to sign a photo. And it was a photo of her in that scene. And oh. she became extremely furious and, mm-hmm. you know, asked him, where did he get the photo? And he's like, well, there's a guy selling him." And she fought, she had the guy take him over to this photo booth and this guy had taken the negative found a negative of the film and like made photos of this and she confiscated like 400 of the photos and like scolded this guy good she was definitely on board for i'll go for the scene but i do not want this to be like an exploited yeah way
2: i already respect that woman and man that that's so awesome good for her i give props to barbara crampton for um for doing that and for, for doing this movie, I think it was a really bold, bold role to yeah. uh, choose to do. Man, such a good movie.
1: Well, that wraps it up for Reanimator and our episode coming to a close here. Um, if you are a newcomer or you haven't uh, followed us on social media, you can find us at Don't Push Pause Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. You can go to our website, don'tpushpausepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter don't push pause podcast <laughs> i'm trying and uh if you ever want to contact us directly you can you know talk to us via don't push pause podcast at gmail.com next episode we have coming up we'll be doing what i think to be one of the best directors that that became prominent in the 90s and and now i think is one of the best modern working directors uh, of our generation, and that's Paul Thomas Anderson, and we'll be doing yeah. his sometimes bloated, but <laughs> always interesting <laughs> and fantastic Magnolia.
2: Oh, this movie. Yeah. It's a—it's uh, not one that you're like, you know what I'm going to do this Sunday afternoon? You sit down and watch
1: Magnolia. Yeah, but that's exactly what we'll be doing. <laughs> you
2: know, yeah, we are going to yeah. do that this Sunday. <laughs> 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 I didn't even mean that. It's going to be Sunday night. It's fine. Yeah, that's all right. It's just not a Sunday afternoon We'll have popcorn movie. and
1: dogs, so it'll be good, and a pizza. <laughs> well, uh, until next time, I'm Justin Johnson.
2: <laughs> and I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thank you so much for listening.
1: Thank you.